0: Welcome to the Petro Nerds podcast with your hosts Trisha Curtis, CEO of Petro Nerds, and Ethan Bellamy. This show combines upstream and midstream expertise in a Rocky Mountain showdown, brought to you by Digital Wildcatters. Hello everyone and welcome to the Petro Nerds podcast. This is episode 32. With Mark Rosano, this is actually part three of a of a very long segment with Mark Mark Rosano, and we started this talking about rigs permits and ducks and everything going on in the U.S. and we are wrapping it up today talking about um, inflation and investor pressure. This episode was actually recorded on Friday, October 22nd, and this is a full we did a, a, a hour long episode um, the week prior with or actually on, on Monday earlier in the week. And we, uh, that was episode 30. We talked about rigs, permits, ducks, and everything going on in the U.S. oil market. We also talked about the IEA Energy Report, and we include we on some macro and some China. And then in the last episode, which kind of ended abruptly, um, and this will be uh, tack on to it perfectly, in the last episode, that was part two with Mark Rosano, that was episode 31. We talked about everything China and macro and the energy crisis. And in this episode today, which is a, a direct continuation on that conversation, in this episode today. Episode thirty-two, uh, part three with Mark Rosano. Mark and I are talking about inflation and investor pressure and ESG and everything that's sort of going on in the U.S. oil equity space. So, really appreciate you guys listening and thank you so much. And apologize for the um, for the putting this together, but I think these these episodes are, are a little bit better uh, broken up. So, thank you so much. Bye. And I think that this gives us a perfect segue into. Uh, into into actually getting into inflation and just wrapping up this like bringing China into the energy crisis. So that's just like I think on the that that China piece of there's another way to look if you're thinking about this energy crisis and you're really trying to just put put a frame of reference in your head. You you can pull up all the data on BP. I went through it in a couple of previous podcasts of like how much for every country BP statistical review. It's not perfect because I I know I, I know China does fudge those numbers too because. Five years ago, they said they were going to hit 65% coal for power, and and lo and behold, they're at 65% coal for power. Yeah. However, uh, which is just super convenient. However, they do have all the data for every country, and so you can start seeing that the you can start seeing that the gigawatts, you know, or the terawatt hours that China has for solar and wind, and how those have risen. And it may not seem like a lot; it's huge, right? Comparing comparing to everyone else, it's huge. But this is like a a seven thousand, you know, terawatt hour, you know, economy. Um, and that's, they always build to to the peak side. So they're not using this this efficiently. But the point is you have a, a huge amount of hydro, you have a huge amount, and you have a decent amount of, of wind and solar. And so if you don't have the, the redundancies on that, if you don't have the wind blowing, or you don't have the sun shining, their solar panels are not less efficient, but they're, uh, they're less efficient if you have pollution, because you're not getting enough sun. Um, and we know lots of places do have pollution. So in a top-down economy like that, you could be putting solar panels in the wrong place uh, for sure. And then you have this and the hydro side. So if you have, like you had in Brazil and you had in, if you had a drier summer and you had, a, you know, hotter weather in a drier summer, you don't have the hydro, you're going to have that problem. So all of that, those, are, that's the renewable piece. All of that pull, is pulling on the coal and is pulling on a very, very small gas market. I mean, China... Does not have a ton of gas. Does not use a ton of gas. They're importing it now, and everyone within Asia is importing it now to have it to to cover themselves, right? In case they do have this cold winter. Um, and then we have Europe that's just kind of screwed because they can't get enough of it. Um, and you know, and Gazprom is all excited because they want this this well, Nord Stream two
1: to get <laughs> those approved. Long, and, those long term contracts to come through.
0: Yeah, and I mean that's a whole nother. This this so I mean this the energy crisis is is a is a. Really, real thing that we're going to see this play out over the course of the winter within China, and you're right. This will be an interesting. These will be interesting data points. But it is all. It all is all interrelated. And I would say economically, because I want to switch this into inflation um, and talking about the global economy. If it was just one. If it was just like there are some economic issues within China, or we have this energy crisis, and some people didn't stockpile natural gas, and we had a little too much wind in the summer, or we had massive inflation in the U.S. One of these pieces. Would be like a one-off thing, right? That the the global mm-hmm. economy could probably manage. Um, it's not one; it's all three. And so you have, you know, very high oil prices, very high natural gas prices, very high energy prices, shortages of energy, real, you know, ridiculous inflation in the U.S. Um, inflation everywhere within europe and uh an economic crisis within within china that people don't want to call it that but a property crisis is an economic crisis within china amongst everything else happening within china and an energy crisis and taken together that is enough to slow to slow the global economy and and impact energy prices and if mm. that is what's really important for me and talking to my clients and i'm you know, people that I'm advising is that you have to be prepared for that. And it doesn't feel like you do, but you at least have to have this on your radar to understand how you think about business, how you invest within the next six months and, and a year. And it doesn't mean that it's tomorrow or people are going to time this perfectly. It means that you pay attention as well as you can, and you know that um looking at places that are going to be safer. And I would say, um we we can pivot this into the the inflation conversation because, uh, we've been talking about inflation for a year and the, the fed has just said, well, it's transitory. It's no big deal. And it's just supply chain bottlenecks in China and it's no big deal. And it's just COVID related. And it's like, well, at this point it, it, one, it doesn't matter. And the fact that the bank of England can say it doesn't matter why we have inflation and literally everyone in Europe is calling out the U S to say, why aren't you raising rates? And then mm-hmm. you start realizing that look, the, the a third of all the dollars in the system, a third of all money of us dollars in the system were, were, put in there during COVID. And that's because the, the the Federal Reserve is is buying, you know, we talked offline before and you can get into this, is buying, you know, these mortgage backed securities um and treasuries and putting this money into the system. The fact that they're still doing this quantitative the fact that there's any assistance on mortgage backed securities is Ludicrous in within this housing market for the past several months, um, but they're going to sort of pull that back. And I think the problem is the Fed's been asleep at the wheel, or they're completely in bed with the Biden administration. Can't tell the difference at this point. Um, Aren't they and, the same at this point? <laughs> or they're the same? In, well, and that's it's really bad because even you have Congress that wants them to be. You know, you have people in Congress calling not not conservatives but progressives calling to remove Powell, and people sort of think he's corrupt in a way, but they also. If you if you're slightly conservative, you'd be concerned that they're going to stack that, you know, they're going to stack the Fed with really far left folks. And the Fed should be an independent body. Um, right. And So this gets a re- scary from an economic standpoint. But the inflation thing is really big. And that does that bites into the consumer, it bites into economic growth. And it is damn sure going to have an impact on energy. And even energy is a huge component of that inflation. But it's damn sure going to have an impact on on oil consumption down the road.
1: Well, and, and that's why I think it's important. And and one of the things that that I that I look at the most when you're when if you want to track like what does this energy crisis look like? Are we are we heading into one? Is it getting better? Is it getting worse? Is really that middle distillate? So I, I break that down into high sulfur fuel oil. That's going to tell you what is the emerging market doing, and then the ultra low sulfur diesel. That's going to tell you what is that developed market doing, and that's going to give you an indication of where is storage, what is floating, who's making what, and that gives you kind of this indication of. Okay, there's we're we're building in storage here. That means that things are slowing down a bit. So those are some of those those little uh, weekly numbers that we look at, and I try to cover it every week in the EIA show on segment three. But you bring up the point when you're looking at inflation, and the problem is, you know, what? But going back to Volker, Volker adjusted the inflation calc to make things look better. And don't get me wrong, he he went after inflation, raised rates to the moon to really bring down and and he said he's like I'm going to bring us into a re- into a recession to to correct this. And when you look at what is happening at this point 43% of the calc is actually real estate and it's just, you know, rent and uh, and primary ownership. And when you look at where rents are right now, back during COVID, you had a situation where people, you know, landlords didn't know if they were going to get paid. So you you you, what do you do? Well, in order you can't put a I don't know into the calc. You have to put a zero. So now that those zeros are going away, now you're getting this big makeup in in uh, in rent, and it's still slow. Like it's not just it just doesn't just show up. So while we have reopening, uh, you know, normalizing, if you will, when you look at airlines, and I mean not to say you know used car prices are back up, but when you look at some of these reopening things, they're started to normalize, but housing is just getting started. And now you start looking at wages. Now, real wage growth is still negative. Now, it's and then then you can break it into four different quartiles of highest, you know, second highest, you know, lower third and then lowest. The lowest individual is making more. They're they're yeah. they're going from making $16 an hour to making $20 an hour, but the top two are actually going down. They and are. it's actually the slowest wage growth at the top sector going back to 2008. And this is a concern because those are the individuals with discretionary income. Those right, are the yeah. people that aren't just buying. They're going on vacations. They're going, yeah. they're going to buy a new car every two years. And when you look at the person at the bottom, you could say, well, they're getting richer or you know, not rich, but, but wealthier. The biggest, but
0: they're the most impacted by inflation. So exactly. They, so not, and they're that's like why. Really richer. They're just literally paying the, right. the taxes on them.
1: So then you look at wage growth over the since the 1970s that you've actually had negative wage growth. And now that's been you can that's skewed because we we've utilized more equity, so there's more equity pay, uh, payments versus straight salary. But even when you normalize it, we've had a steady decline of wage growth since 1975. So now the question is if you start to make this up and pay people more, well, how do you how do you finance that? Well, you have to increase your prices. But I can't increase my prices because my input costs are going up and I'm already charging people the most I've ever charged them since I've started keeping, uh, keeping track of this. Then you look at food, food is at a 60-year high once you factor in inflation. And if you take out inflation and just look at prices outright, foods are at a 10-year high, and wheat just hit $10 a bushel, which is the first time, first time, I think it was like since 2002. So we're looking at things that are just absurd in pricing. And the problem is, especially when you look at food, that doesn't go away. You know this is this isn't something where i snap my fingers and i and i and i grow more beans there's a cycle in this there there's a whole process that comes in
0: but that's not and- necessarily a shortage of food and that's the, that's the problem is i think the fed and the media especially have, have, have showcased this and explained it is like well it's just supply chain bottlenecks. This is just like, oh my gosh, we won't have a Christmas, and oh, well, these rich people won't have a Christmas. It's not that you don't. It's not necessarily a shortage of food. It's it's the prices of this stuff, and it's a. Right. This is why I get really concerned about the prices of energy for for lower income is that people are going to start turning down the thermostats this winter, and that mm-hmm. impacts people's health. People actually die from this, and the same thing for food when it's expensive and you're lower income. Yeah, you're making more. But you're also you're you're spending it you're spending it at the grocery store, and that that gets to a point where it's just it's not sustainable, and it it, it is a super wonky inflation mm-hmm. and and split at the post COVID. But it's not to say that we're not producing enough wheat or we're not producing enough. I mean, enough food necessarily. In
1: the in the U.S., we're fine. I mean, we're exporters, so the problem right. is the people in Egypt that that cancel tenders because they get too expensive. But you bring up a great point when and and I've I've described it as. When you have to choose between, am I going to feed my family tonight or heat the home to 65? That is a poor decision. That you, that, you don't want to have someone make that choice. No. And that's what we're looking at is, am I going to eat tonight or am I, am I going to be under one blanket instead of seven?
0: And, that's and the, that, that that's is the a thing that That's the thing that people, when I have been telling people for an entire year or this, this whole 2021 on this podcast is that we have not had high energy prices and inflation in the last 10 years. We have not had. So we've had we you've seen high oil prices for sure. You've seen high natural mm-hmm. gas prices. You have not seen that in tandem with all rampant other inflation. And that is damning to the consumer and the economy. And it's not seen well because people had you keep hearing like Bank of America, like people have money in their bank accounts. Those numbers of what people have money in their bank accounts, they say it's like, oh, it's three to five thousand. And I realized that Three to five thousand, you know, great to have that in your bank account. It's really, actually, with these kind of inflation numbers and at the grocery store, that's not a lot of money. That's not that much cover for for folks to, you know, take care of their families, and especially if someone to lose a job or anything. And so it's that that cost of of. Yeah, heating the home, or and and driving your car to the doctor, and um and feeding your family. These are real things that there is no descri- There's no extra money to go spread around, and um it's it's not going to work. And I think the the White House has made clear, you know, tried to make clear with their previous uh, spending plans and their spending bills that this was actually going to curb that 3.5 trillion dollar package was actually going to help these families and it was going to curb inflation and there's no way it can really curb inflation. If you're adding, if it, if it's additional spending wide add feudal fire. And I think that's what, why they're sort of pulling back. They know that this stuff isn't right. going to work, but in your opinion, is there a good answer to solve this? Is it just, is this, some of it's so COVID induced that we can walk it back and other pieces. Is there methods of policy or anything that, um I, you know, I don't have a lot of faith in our, our our fed at the moment, but that can be done that we can sort of stem you know, uh, at least we can't impact you know, energy price will probably solve themselves and they're going to get too high and that demand is going to come off, at, mm-hmm. especially in Asia and filter back. But what about for the the, the food costs in the US? You
1: know, the, the, the problem right now is it's going to have to take raising rates. And that's that's the the thing that nobody wants to see. South Korea has already started to take them up. They've taken them up again. Uh, Russia actually had a big surprise to the upside. And, and that's really the only way to start getting in front of this and to try to slow down some of this and make it more of a controlled slowdown instead of this out of control. I'm gonna, you know, just speed into the side of a wall. And the the biggest issue that that we're looking at right now, especially when you start talking about these these decisions that people are making, it's that three thousand dollars that you that you've spoken about. A lot of that is is also skewed to the top. So when you start looking at these individuals and Arbor Data does a really good job of Google Trends and and looking at different movements you've actually had a big increase in 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 google searches for payday loans and for um, cash advances that's, and that's a concern because the people mess, that i mean so the people that we're talking about that are going to be the most infa- impacted those are the individuals that are searching for that right and that means that they're already starting to pull forward some of this money now it's twofold there's there's one thing of People are, have been sacrificing. They want to have a nice Christmas. They're worried about buying goods. So I think you could get one more surprise of retail sales as people try to, to-
0: I agreed. I think I think people are going to pump. Actually, we might see some pumping because people are nervous they're not going to get stuff. So they're, yeah. they're, they're kind of hoarding now or why not buy it now? Because I'm going to have more inflation later and, and just like, screw it. Let's do it. Plus, there's- you still have the pent-up demand, the COVID. I was stuck in my house for a year. Damn it, we're going mm-hmm. on the vacation no matter what. Put it on the credit card. We're going to do it. And I think that has absolutely skewed, at least in the past four months, I think that actually skewed how a lot of economists and stuff are viewing U.S. data and the health of the consumer, is that people, are spending, sp- people are spending stupidly um, yeah. and have done it all summer. And we saw it. You, you went anywhere. You're looking around like, what is happening? Mm-hmm. That, it's just ridiculous. Um, so that, that's the thing. But sorry, go back. To what you so were now to you look right? at
1: the PMI data that came out, like our whole call was that you were going to get manufacturing missing estimates and services beating estimates, and we got that. And, and I think that's kind of the last spike that we're going to get. And now you're going to see some of this you know, pairing back a bit. But to your point on how do we fix this? One, you get rid of $40 billion of, of purchasing uh, every month in MBS or mortgage-backed securities by the Fed. Then that leaves you because we're buying $120 billion, 40, 40 million of MBS, yep. uh, 80 million of, of, um, of treasuries. Now you, start, you have to start walking this back. But the problem is, and, and you talk about getting things passed in Congress, right now you look at rates and people say, well, rates are low because people don't believe inflation. It's like, no, rates are low because there's a bigger buyer than a seller because right. the Fed is sitting there buying. Now, as you have the Fed backing off, now you can start seeing rates coming up. And, and you brought up a point about why isn't the US raising rates? And this is the biggest concern right now because the emerging markets trade off of our 10 years. Absolutely. And that's when you start to see some of this friction because and, and they've they've gotten ahead of it. They've you've started to see they started hoarding dollars, they've started picking up treasury purchases, trying to build build up their reserve capacity to your point on energy because everything trades in US dollars. So if I want to get my dollars now to make sure that I have at least have enough to buy the wheat, to buy the diesel, right. to buy the oil that I need, just because I need some sort of stability, but that, wind, that dwindles very quickly when you see rates going up. And that's that catch 22 of this is what we need to do, but this is going to make the pain that much worse at the emerging market level. So one of the things that, that I think can be used is using Fed swaps, which just means that you have a direct line to the Fed to access dollars, and you don't have to deal with some of the cross currents that can be created by buying it in the open market. That would help solidify some of the debt backdrop. That would,
0: that would be helpful in tandem with, I mean, it seems like so that would be helpful in tandem with one immediately stop purchasing all all the, I mean, you have to start tapering now aggressively. And yes, Yes. you're going to hurt the market a little bit. Things are going to, it's going to get painful. And then you have to screw to like, wait until 2022. It's I think by the end of the year, it should be, and it should have been. And I tweeted about this a long time ago is that the Fed should be raising rates before the end of the year. This was like Mm -hmm. in February. I mean, absolutely. Even if it's small, because you're not going to have, the the Fed has a couple tools and one of them, it's basically interest rates. And if we have a slowing economy, you're not going to have any tools in your toolbox to slow, to lower interest rates. And you need, you have to have the, and you're penalizing, you know, with inflation, anyone who has money. And I know everybody hates it for, for some of us who, you know, try to actually work and save money, but like, That saving, you know, some of us don't are afraid to put it in the market because it's crazy and and it Mm -hmm. it doesn't it looks out out of whack. So if you're trying to save money, you're losing that you're losing 5.4 percent for inflation. But you also the reason you have to have, you know, slightly higher interest rates is to prevent asset bubbles and prevent people from just throwing all their money into another, you know, three, four, four more houses. You want people to put it into CDs and things that get a modest return that are safe and also give liquidity to the system and allow those people to that money to go back into the system. I mean, there's a reason why you you don't have zero percent, you know, zero percent forever. And there's a reason why you have to have slightly higher. And there's there's a balance. And, you know, I think people forget that, it's the the Phillips curve, right inflation and unemployment mm-hmm. and everybody thought that it was you know Switzerland every you always wanted to be where Switzerland was, which was you know um, low low inflation and and low unemployment. and I, you know, I hate to say this because I I know if, if there's any Trump haters out there um, but Trump had it. I mean, he absolutely had it. We had low inflation and low unemployment. and there's a number of reasons from a business cycle standpoint why we had that that low inflation, but I mean we we had rock bottom unemployment and now we're facing. Now we're still facing a you know a major sticky you know unemployment situation that's that's more about you know the, the policy side of the government still having incentives out there to prevent people from going back to work but it's it's completely out of line um mm-hmm. and so i I interjected your your policy analysis of what we should be doing of fed swaps um but I'm just saying interjecting adding oh no i getting uh, interest I... rates to so that.
1: Would seem no, like I, I agree with you. And, and you know, one of the things that it was funny because I, I had this uh, conversation with my father, and we were talking about you know when was the last time you cared about inflation, and he had to think about it. He's like, probably eighty one was the yep. last time I, I really you know had to consider about inflation. And we were talking about when he bought his first home, and and how you know, the first home was seventy thousand dollars, and and his you know mortgage was twenty seven percent. And in my head, I'm like, wow, twenty seven percent, like that's that's crazy. He's like, but think about it. I was, yes, I paid 27% in my mortgage, but I was also making 21% in my right. savings account. So all of a sudden he's like, you have to think of a spread. You know, when you think of it, it's not just a one-sided argument where right now, yeah, you can get a a, uh, a mortgage for 3%, but how are you saving your money? How are you getting that down payment? Because his down payment was much smaller, bigger tax. Uh, you know, if you right. want to look at the at the inflation side, on the mortgage side, but he was also earning in the bank. And, and like you said, we're not earning anything. Like if you have a money market account, because of the reserve re, uh, repo purchase, uh, the reverse repo purchase, the RRP that the bank has, you're essentially guaranteed to get five basis points. And all that is, and, and all it is, so just to not to, to, to gum up the uh, conversation, but when you look at money market accounts, your money market account disappears from your account at 2 pm. It gets swept into a vehicle. And then if JP Morgan is short $10 billion at the end of the day, and Morgan Stanley is long $10 billion at the end of the day, they will do an overnight swap and they'll say, I'll lend it to you and mm-hmm. it'll be at a specific rate. And then the money goes back to people. Now, there's so much money in the system that that market has broken down. So what does the Fed do? The Fed says, put it on our sheets and then we'll give it back to you. And these, these, these deals can last up to 367 days. So, when you look at what it is, we have $1.4 to $1.6 trillion just going from bank balance sheet to Fed balance sheet at five basis mm-hmm. points. I mean, that's, that's, I, that's nothing. Like, you, you're not saving on that. You're not retiring on that. Like, that is not income somebody can plan their life around. And that's, that's where we sit right now. We sit in this, this world of excess with liquidity sloshing around and these artificial numbers. Wait, and me, the only just- way to, t- yeah, crap. And the only way to, to do that is to, the system. Yeah. And, and the only way to take that out is you, you raise rates. And because how do you raise rates? Well, if you want to, if you, you know, if you want to bring rates down, you are can sell, you have to, you know, you, you buy the the uh the asset and you bring the rates down because you know price and uh, yield are inverse. So here you just sell what's on the balance sheet and you take in that excess dollars. And that's what they need to do, is they need to start absorbing some of this money. Otherwise, you're just going to see a, a very, very sloppy, you know, next two to three years.
0: Well, and it, what's scary is that I think it was done so poorly that it, it didn't it was you couldn't have predicted exactly how COVID would have played out. But you 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 knew pretty early on that that you, what you, that it was forced, right, that this was not a um, an economic crisis that happened to you. This was induced. And then you knew pretty quickly that how to how to sort of economically respond to that. So. The fact that they've allowed and maintained uh, these asset purchases, with you know a, a third of the dollars being in the system since, actually, it's the amount of money that's been in the system since the vaccine was deployed. That's what's astounding to me. Is that mm-hmm. well, the stuff didn't add up. You know what, what you were doing, and that's where it gets a little hairy on the policy side and everything. Of, um, and, and I think a lot of folks are just done with it. Um, are, are over that we have inflation. Um, we haven't solved and, and the COVID s- stories is, is is almost separate from this. But having this real inflation, yes, you you see wage growth on the bottom end. You're not seeing it in the middle on the top end. And actually, holy, I just saw the numbers for um, oil and gas numbers for employment, um, which are still at r- just incredibly low. Yeah. And women are just rock. Bot. Women have not come back into oil and gas space at all um which is very sad and women haven't come back into the the space in general because if you had a kid during covid or if you had kids and now you're looking at uh, now you're looking at a system because people always ask me like why don't we have more people in the system and one of them is women because it's expensive to um, it, it's expensive for childcare now, and much mm-hmm. more expensive than it was. And so you're looking at how much I'm making, and why not have a parent just stay home? And that is impacting the the sort of employment situation of of getting people back into the workforce. Of there's something to that, and you know the 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 answer from the White House is well, we'll just give people daycare and we'll, we'll do this, and that isn't the answer. Um, I mean, it, it it's partly. In, help workers and stuff in doing this, of helping with daycare, but it also adds a cost to the system, which is inflationary. Um, it sort mm-hmm. of just comes back home true. So, I mean, I think I would like to close this inflation topic by just saying I, it's, it's, a, it's a really, really big deal. It's massively complex. And the reality is, is that, um, you know, there's a couple of things, I think early 2000s, and even to, like you said, 2007, 2008, the market kept ramping up. And I'm not saying like we're going to ramp up and we're going to crash and it's it's 2008 all over again. But the reality is is that there's just a lot there's a lot of stuff at play. And I do I absolutely think the the U.S. consumer is way is less healthy than people think. Um, mm-hmm. COVID has sort of masked that. Pent up demand has masked that. And this inflation piece of people having less money is a really big deal for economic growth. Is a huge deal for um, energy prices down the road.
1: They're, I, they're just- I 100% agree. I, I mean that's that's a, and one of the interesting things when you talk about employment. You know, when you, and the one of the, the number one thing that has been said about when, when people have said, Why aren't you looking for a job? It's because, and the answer is because my spouse works. And it's because that, that childcare side, but and then think of it on the other side. It's not even just childcare. What is the ancillary piece of that? Well, that means if you're working, then you have to get more takeout. Prices at restaurants have gone up. So you're going to try to cook more at home. You know, there's so many knock on effects when you think of, you know, childcare, like you said, is a big one, but not the only thing. No, and that's where that's why ad- addressing it with policy is so difficult because that you know the the economy is a living, breathing thing. There's right. knock on effects. You, you know, you push on a string, and a million of them will will respond to the to the string push. Where how do you write policy to address all that? Which is why communism and and planned economies end up failing because you push too hard on one, ignoring the fact that you're cracking everything around you. So.
0: Nice when you look back.
1: at this, what'd what you say?
0: Nice circle back
1: there. with Yeah. So uh, that's why when when you look at a lot of these different pieces, there there's so much at play, and, and and we just have to let the market be the market, and and we have to stop just pumping in all of this stimulus. Because another thing that we've talked about, and and you alluded to it by saying we've pulled forward a lot of this demand, is what's called fiscal drag, and fiscal drag is just saying, well, you goosed money in, say, March. So we gave people $1,200 in March. So the things that they were going to buy in May, they bought in March. So you pulled forward all of this demand, but you're left with the debt on the back end. So then you create this fiscal drag that's come through, and then you usher in what's called the law of diminishing returns, which I've described it using pizza, but this one I'll describe it using beer, because why not? Where when you think about drinking uh, you know, a beer, one beer is great, Two beer is excellent. Three beers, you're starting to get a little buzz. Four, you're starting to get a little queasy. Five, you're like, okay, I should probably stop. And by the eighth one, you're, you're, you're in the bathroom getting a little sick. So when you look at law of diminishing returns, there's only so much you can add before you're actually detracting. So then every new incremental dollar is actually damaging the system, not helping it. And when you look at how much money we we just juiced into the system. And the amount of growth we've achieved, I mean, this is the clearest example of just law of diminishing returns just coming in and hitting us over the head where every new incremental dollar is not going to be helpful. There's going to be a point, and China found that out the hard way, where it's actually negative. And and I think we're 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 right on that 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 uh, that precipice of if we do that 3.5 trillion, I really don't think it's gonna have the effects they want. I think it'd actually have the negative impact. That they're uh, that they're looking to avoid
0: well it's uh, one i I would say that it th- that's a really really good way to summarize that so that was awesome um and it actually lets us jump into this uh this investor this in, this investor piece and in, in interest rates within the stock market and I know this is a long podcast so we may actually there's a there's a chance we may separate this or segment this into a, <laughs> another part just because I have no idea if the listeners can handle uh, an hour plus but we're gonna we're gonna continue and, and I may break this out into another segment but um, anyways, the this so you comment on that that three point five trillion dollar package, and I think that the resistance that people are obviously having now facing within Congress because it was like, oh, this is a sure deal this is happening. I think one, they think that um, the economy is not doing well, um, Biden's poll ratings are tanking, and they're going to get blamed if they pass this. They're going to get blamed by their constituents for it, continued inflation. And the reality is, is that policies is it is a button that you push right but the economics are moving as you said it's a living breathing organism so you put a policy here it takes it takes years and months of implementation and things have already changed and that's why you, that's why you can see things like the ethanol mandate when we were we have to blend certain amounts of, of or certain volumes of ethanol it does not always work because it doesn't match up to the economic reality so you just have to be careful when you're doing things on a you know a fiscal side and you're doing things on a monetary side that they tend to not add up perfectly. Um, and it's that we're seeing that the incentives of the economic incentives, uh, unemployment benefits were huge. I mean, paying people to not work did not help anything. Um, especially in the, especially in the last months of the, of the summer months. I mean, that certainly did not help when, and you heard it from every single restaurant. If you went out to eat and you're waiting an hour after you have a reservation or you're doing anything and they say, well, we just don't have any staff. and And you say, well, what's, what's going on with that? And they say, well, we have people come in and interview. We have people that we hire. They don't show up. And then they say they only took the interview because they wanted to maintain their unemployment benefits. I heard that so many times, not just this was at KOA campgrounds and everything. And you saw the KOA was literally used to be staffed with younger people and then staffed with with older people who should be retired. But they're working because they they can't get anybody. So that you, you did a really good job summarizing that. And I just I just think that's reality. But it does mean that if the Fed does raise rates, right, and they're going to they're going to have to slowly raise rates or or you're just going to have to knock out this Fed. And other countries are doing it. Bank of England is saying this, like folks are really, uh, we have monetary authorities across the globe that are going to have to start raising rates. Um, that means that, and I, I said at the beginning of this podcast, I wanted to talk about you know, ESG and investor pressure. I think this is a, a big reality on on tech, right? On on all these spaces that we've all been. Let's have a spec, and this is amazing, and EFTs, and it's just just everything is. Everybody's going bananas, and it's just awesome and and exciting. Part of that is extremely low rates, and the fact that you know solar companies and wind companies and battery companies, and anything green can just borrow money um, on the cheap and then go make their stuff. So. We already know that valuations for a lot of of U.S. equities and and foreign equities are are way over their skis. But part of that is because, especially now, if you're if, we're, if they know interest rates are going to be higher, their ability to get money and borrow is going to be less. It's no different than when it was in the oil patch and people said, "Well, these oil companies have been able to borrow for nothing, but now rates go up and then they're in trouble." Um, or they or their access to borrowing, not rates going up, but their their access capital will go down the same thing if you're if you're right. So I think this investor pressure makes me think about this in a different way is that this has been it's largely wind, solar and battery. And and you put green on it and you create a SPAC. And and that's great. And you have this massive ESG pressure, partly from you know, obviously, we're hearing it from the White House with the, the climate change executive order 14008 that started in January. We have the Treasury trying to push it as well, looking to actually You know, regulate the SEC actually trying to regulate within the space. But it's all this what people believe and perceive and see and feel for what is ESG and how's it weighing on the investor and how's it weighing on the generalist investor. And that has pushed people to, or supposedly pushed people to, leave the oil and gas space, which they were leaving the US shale space before the ESG pressure because they just weren't getting the returns. But then it's now sort of the nail in the coffin. And even with $83 a barrel, you don't have people flock. And you do. You have some institutions and folks saying you got to get back in energy because this is inflation. This is just where you need to be to diversify your portfolio. But the reality is, is that you have this pressure from investors, which I've criticized in previous podcasts and talked about, which I don't think is is always accurate. And I don't think operators should be necessarily chasing it because it's a moving target too. These investors change their mind of what they exactly want. But this issue pressure, I think, is really important to think about how real it is, what it is, and what it's actually the dislocations it's creating, not just in the U.S. energy space, but in, in the global energy space of how people are investing in oil and gas and what that means for the energy crisis and reality of, of how we're going to be using this stuff.
1: And that's where you've started to see some some greenwashing where guys are, are looking to do things just in order to say or show that they're making progress to bring down some of their... Uh, some of their costs. So if you look at something like a, a refiner or a petrochemical, you know, how how can they utilize more hydrogen as fuel? Not because it's going to make them money, but because it shows that they're that they're addressing the carbon footprint. You know, the things that are being done, and it's more along the lines of not because it's a good business decision, but to preserve capital. And now the difference is which is obviously like as you said, sometimes it takes years to to move things through the system. As you start raising rates, you then increase the cost of capital and it makes that hurdle rate that much harder to achieve, where you know you can sit in a growth stock and, and you can churn, throw good money after bad because you know, your hurdle rate is so low that I have time to sit here and wait, I don't need to see a return that quickly. Where, and then that you've seen the birth of zombie companies and, and how these things are just living and breathing off of their next uh, their next offering where when you look at something like this where the moment you get it out of the ground, you know, you're going to start generating cash, you're going to start having some sort of return, I think you, you that you're going to start to see this swing back a bit, but it takes time. You know, you they, the policies didn't come overnight from think and these other guys where they're like, "Oh, I'm I'm going to cut, you know, 15 uh 15% of all of my holdings, you know, have to go to ESG and and we're never going to invest in oil and gas again." But that has to change and and that that's going to take time because that's in legal docs you have to get the legal docs redone then you have to send it back out then you have to make sure you can raise money for it but people don't like losing money people don't like missing out people have fomo so how it- how are you going to sit here and and watch some of these stocks go from you know the dregs all the way back up you know 100 200% and you're not invested now you could say look I don't want to be invested on the public side because I but why can't you be invested on the private side? Why can't ah, you all I'm of a sudden have yeah. some of this? Uh, you know, and I think the public end is becoming a problem because you have so much froth. You know, at what point do you get this correction and you get this multiple com- uh, compression? So, what about the private side right? where I can get in and I can I I know what my cost is going to be. I know what my uh, what my price is going to be. I can hedge it out if I want because I'm just trying to make a spread. I don't need to capture the whole piece. And that's where I think you're starting to see the rise of pr- more private investing and people wanting to get away from some of this. Because I, even the people that are in the market, I talked to friends that are in uh, TMT, and, and I was like, you know, why do you still own this stuff? He's like, because I have to. I was like, has anything changed since we sold this three hundred dollars ago? And they're like, no, but I'm still in it because I have to be. And and it's just like so that the, the tr- there's also this hair trigger, which then if there's any sniff of panic then like as you were saying with with raising rates with with when we talked about with Powell talking about how it's time to taper people have an itchy trigger finger and there's i, I think you could see tech really roll over quickly and then you could get these air pockets where everybody's a buyer nobody's uh, everybody's a seller and nobody's a buyer and all of a sudden you get this gap down and that would then create i think more of this fear which again you, you're away from in the private market, that you can kind of look at this over the longer term, where I've been, and I'll admit it, I'm a beaten gas ball. I've, you know, what's playing out right now on gas, I've talked about since 2018, 2019 with LNG bringing it back. You know, all of these different things, underinvestment on the natural gas side, and here we are. But if if you played that out in the public markets, you went bankrupt unless you had tight stops. Where well, if you were but- playing this. Good.
0: That's that's the problem is that. So I think people interpret that though, and you you bring up excellent excellent points because you just say I mean you you kind of catalyze and brought this all together. It's like I have this this investor ESG pressure here. It's kind of greenwashing. I've got um I've got this, you know I've I've got these activist investor stuff here. I have this, but I could go invest in the private space. Um and then oh, but I had this I had this long theory that works really well, but I couldn't actually do it in the public space. There's that. This should not be how it is, and I don't like the operate. I don't like the companies that buy into it and don't say no. I am a. I have to run my company, and I I I do blame some CEOs to a degree on this, and they need to start taking charge of their own companies now because they're not getting any benefit from. They're not necessarily getting a return from their shareholders on what's actually happening. You know, on the other side, and so they're not. If you, if I'm investing in all this stuff, no, I'm not getting returned. That's a problem. So that. One, they don't know how to define the ESG, so they're chasing it, and you've got the FOMO, and you've got all this stuff, so that's all kind of put together. But two, you have this thing like, so engine number one, um, I listened to the CEO speak the other day, and it was it was very broad base of like, this is what we achieved with Exxon, and that we're trying to educate people that, look, with this small dollar amount, you can get three board seats, and that it's really about what you believe in, and that you know, we're pushing Exxon to think about long-term growth, not short-term. And I just thought, that's really ridiculous, because. Do they understand how the hydrocarbon, how oil markets actually work? And do they, you know, to me, I think it's very easy to have a very uh, it is easy now to have a long term bullish story on oil and gas. And in fact, that these board members, even though they're independent directors, um, could be influencing this in the wrong direction. And the fact that just engine number one raised money on the back of all that publicity for a green fund is just uh, it's a it's hip, it's hypocrisy and it's it's wrong. Um but the private equity space or the private space i want to get your thoughts on this before we close and that's that they don't they've been influenced by tech as well so the pe mm-hmm. side or private equity and maybe different than just private because i do think there's a role for just private investors that have done a good job in energy and different things and i and overwhelmingly i would advocate to be private because you have must, a lot of flexibility but as we talked about in that previous podcast being private you're you ratchet up you ratchet down especially in, on the oil space private equity steps over dollars to pick up dimes and they Mm -hmm. are highly influenced by tech and and fomo and everything so in the energy space i would say that they are just trying to save themselves they hedged in with four handles in in 2020 which wasn't smart and now they're not capturing upside oil prices and really if they're thinking about energy they're probably going crazy on green and batteries and may not that may not come to come to fruition in the way they think it is so i mean i just love it is is that private equity space like I think they need to be a little better educated.
1: I I agree and I think that that provides a lot of opportunity webs you've seen uh a fleeing from from the market and that's where that's actually why we created the private equity fund that we created because there's this huge opportunity and there's this this missed uh you know this missed chance to really make a difference but again driving the narrative where it's not fossil fuels or Renewables, it's and there's both. You like it's a basket approach. You can have both. There are part, like Las Vegas, solar's fantastic. Florida, solar's fantastic. You know, you go to you go to the to the Northeast with with winter. You know what? You're gonna need some coal, and that's okay. It's okay to use coal. It is okay and a lot to have that. It, it's like, and like and it. and, so, yeah. and it's okay to build pipelines for gas. Like there's there are things that have to be done that have to be strategic. Because, and again, like you know, we can debate on, on what it is, but for me, natural gas isn't a bridge fuel, it's a fuel of the future. And it will be a fuel of the future for as far as we can see until we can figure out cold fusion. And even then we'll probably regulate that to death and we won't even have that make money. But when you look at what has to be done in the future, it really has to be a, like, we need to understand that technology isn't there yet. If you just look at thermodynamics, we understand the limitations of solar based on what we have available. We understand the limitations of batteries, and we try to ignore it with without and 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 going back to greenwashing, ignoring the full supply cycle and full value chain of a battery. Well, where does it start? Well, it starts as raw materials that come out of the ground that have to be pulled out of the ground using diesel, using diesel Mine. from the the uh, to the boats to you know the smelting. There 100%. are things that we need to appreciate when you're looking at if you need that, if you want that to be a case, and, and we can go through economic growth, but every single industrial revolution, as far back as we can we can count, has been driven by cheap energy, by cheap forms of energy. When you look at every time we've had this huge resurgence of growth and, and industrial revolution and economic economies flourishing it's on the back of a new cheap energy, a new form of energy, something that we're able to capitalize on and grow off of. But now by hindering this in, in terms of poor forms of investment, unwillingness to let people go bankrupt and free up that capital to be redistributed elsewhere, we're just sitting in this holding pattern. Nobody's doing R&D. Why? Because why would I do R&D? I can use financial manipulation. I can clip 3% risk-free so why am I going to worry about something that may or may not work? Well, let's increase the hurdle rate. Let's make it where I'm not going to issue debt, do buybacks, and and collapse an arb. You know, if you look at who's investing on, on the nanochip, you know who's investing on something. And, and I'm saying realistically, like look at the TV back in the '70s when we went from uh, from tubes to microchips. You know, we had an issue of speed. We had an issue of heat. We had an issue of processing. So what do we do? We invent We invented something different because we in, we knew that that was going to be the next way, and then you know people capitalized on that. We need to get back to that. We need to get back to this investing, this r d, you know let's figure out a way. you know we're, we're capturing what twenty percent of oil in place. Let's figure out how to do forty percent. you yep. know there's there's going to be a way. somebody will figure it out. you know there's something that can be said about a way to do it, and we're just sitting there. With our with sitting on our hands, kind of waiting for someone to tell us what to do, and I and it's unfortunate on on the uh, on that R and D side.
0: I well, that's a great a great way to close the podcast, and we there's a million things we could be talking about on the investment space that you brought up. I will I will close and say that one I'd love that we should be intelligent investing, uh, which is something I'm sure Mark and I can both help advise you on um, if you're really looking at how to actually do this properly. So there's that, but intelligent investing is huge and i think just doing the research and understanding that this isn't nearly as simple as just going after green or going after oil and and actually going for right i'm also super long on that gas i'd bet everything i own on the future of natural gas because it's going to be here for a very very long time um and lastly i would say if you correlate what you said on cheap energy and we actually had that again if you pull back the numbers and you're looking at um if you take world bank data and you look at uh GDP growth, global GDP growth, especially like look at U.S. GDP growth, unemployment and oil demand. And you put those together. And actually, if you put a separate chart and you put oil prices and oil demand, you realize that the low prices we had um, with under Obama and actually into Trump had a have did have an impact both for Germany, for Germany, for the U.S. Um, and for Europe in terms of our economic growth. They did help propel us in the recovery and low energy prices is something I always say, especially when prices were rising before, but we do need, we actually need oil prices to kind of take a step back. And those low prices and sustainable, you know, those 60, 50, $60 oil was extremely beneficial to the global economy Mm -hmm. and and it was beneficial to the industry.
1: Well, and, and we, and people take them for advantage, uh, people take it for advantage, uh, advantage of it. And, and they, they take it where it's always going to be here, so we don't have to worry about it. And, right. and I mean, I, I could I could rip apart MMT in three seconds. But when you look at just like the underlying structure, is we don't we're not in a closed system, and we have to respect the fact that we're not in a closed system. And there's so many outside influences in terms of energy, in terms of debt, in terms of how this cycles, which is why China matters for us, even though we'd love to say it doesn't. It is going to have a huge impact because it reverberates. Because what is what is a hydrocarbon, but highly it's mobile. I can I can right. send a hydrocarbon anywhere. I mean, three weeks ago, if we were having this conversation, Europe was importing uh, was importing gas oil. All of a sudden, you had the Arb blow wide open. You had India and Singapore shipping everything they could, any boat they could get. They uh, South Korea just filled another new build VLCC to ship. You know th- that's what they were doing because the Arb opened. Three weeks later, the Arb is completely shut down, and now it's completely open the other way, sending fuel oil from Europe into asia so we need to respect the fact that this is not a closed system we are always going to be interconnected Absolutely. and don't get me wrong the us is obviously a huge piece of it but we're not the only piece of it and i think a lot of times you get a uh, you know the, some myopic views in terms of well the us is saying this it's like okay but there's something outside of that and there's a Absolutely. lot of it, there's a lot of demand and a lot of growth outside of the us that you have to respect and appreciate especially when we when we're looking at economic growth rates you know, where some of these slowdowns could hit, you know, what happens to global growth as estimates continue to get taken down by the IMF and others.
0: Absolutely. Well, with all that, that was a great, nice close, Mark. I really appreciate it. We have actually about to hit this one hour, 30 minute mark. So I'm probably not going to force, uh, multiple podcasts on the listeners for a a while and just help them help them get through this information, but really appreciate it. It was super fun. I know you have a call to to run off to, but just wanted to thank you. And, uh, we, I'm, I'm sure we'll be talking soon.
1: So thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Bye.